Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Rich Brown, welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, uh, it's we're definitely going to talk about this, but you have your own podcast, which I'm, I'm fascinated to talk to you about that. And frankly, uh, learn maybe a couple of things either during this broadcast or after. And I should mention that I connected to you through Rob Dull, who is listening to this, but not participating. And he connected. I, I think you guys have a mutual friend. Maybe he was a Marine and a police officer at some point. But anyway, it's we connected through that uh, the military and police uh, connection, which is pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Awesome. So uh, you have a very uh, interesting background, uh, similar to mine in some ways, but uh, in a lot of ways, not so similar. Um, so let's start with who, where you were as a child. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Uh, born and for the most part raised in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, like I told you in the pre-show, Paul, I was, we kind of moved around a lot. My dad worked for various construction companies. So we lived in Georgia for a while. We lived in Nashville for a while. We lived in Memphis for a while. And and then back and forth to Knoxville in between those trips. Okay. But you call Knoxville home essentially. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you're, you're kind of between Knoxville and Nashville these days. Yeah. I live on the Cumberland plateau. Uh, I inherited a beautiful farm up here. We've got, uh, I was training a group of federal law enforcement officers recently and I made the mistake of saying, yeah, man, I've got a 14 acre compound in East Tennessee. And they were like, uh, I don't think you should use compound rich. That's, that's, <laughs> you start hearing about Southerners compounds and religion and you start issuing warrants. So I'm like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Bible belt and compound maybe aren't a good combo. Not a good combo. Yeah. All right. Uh, how did you spend time as, as a kid? So you went to school, you did stuff mom and dad wanted you to do, but uh, when you had your own time, what were you doing? I, I was fortunate. <clears throat> I, I had the best grandparents anyone's ever had, Paul. And um, Ralph and Margaret Brown. And what's interesting about that is, so my uh, first name is Ralph. I go by my middle name, Richard or Rich to my friends. But uh, I inherited his house, so it was funny because the mail kept coming for Ralph Brown, only it was a different Ralph Brown when we inherited his house. And my daughter uh, is Margaret, so it's like Ralph and Margaret still live in, in that house. But no, I, I, they were amazing and uh, spent a lot of time. He, he owned a tractor and trailer, so we would go down to the watermelon patches in Florida and get watermelons and sell them on the market in Atlanta and uh, it, it was just a paradise for a kid because I'm out on the road with my grandfather, who I loved and adored, hearing all the stories of growing up in the Depression and just having the time of my of any kid's life. Because I would get out there and pick peaches with the women picking the peaches in Georgia and work on the line when he would let me at nine years old. It was just it was just wonderful times. And I did a lot of uh, martial arts growing up, which we'll, we can probably talk in greater detail later. But. Those were some of the things I did. I, I had a brother and a sister. Uh, unfortunately, my sister's passed away, but me and my brother are still incredibly close. He was a Marine. He was a cop. And he's he's retired at a Coast Guard a guy who, who lives on a sailboat in Key West, man. He's living the dream, Paul. That, that is the dream. Yeah. So uh, your dad, your granddad was a truck driver. Yeah, man. He was uh, – what's interesting – my father was the first generation of Browns that could read and write. Yeah. As crazy as that sounds, I found my great-grandfather's will and had an X where his signature was supposed to be. And when I would go 
in the on the road with my grandfather, he couldn't read and write. So I would have to read the menus to him and tell him what the signs on the road says. It's kind of crazy. But he got his driver's license at a time, you know, when literacy in the United States was, was high. And it, I guess they didn't have a written test back then. And he was grandfathered in. So anyway, to make a long story short, uh, that was that was something that was uh, very interesting. And I just assumed that was the case for everybody of his generation. Like nobody could read and write. And this was something that was a new invention pretty much. But so, yeah, we have uh, that, that's that's kind of the stock I come from. Illiterate East Tennesseans. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. Uh... I don't know if my grandfather on my dad's side was literate or not. He died when I was younger, but he was also a truck driver mm. and uh, he stopped going to school in eighth grade. And my, my dad ended up going to uh, joining the army and going to college. And so, yeah, I, I think you and I have fairly similar backgrounds and his family, central Virginia, Southwest Virginia kind of thing. And so I, it sounds like your, your background, my background are not uh, dissimilar. No, not dissimilar at all. And it's interesting because I've, I've done a lot of research uh, on the family lineage going back all the way to, to a little town in Scotland called Caradale Glen. And we actually went back there a couple of years ago where the Browns came from. And it was a, a really interesting place and, and to understand why they left that country. And I, I always thought a lot of the words that my grandfather and my great grandfather used were just some sort of Appalachian gibberish. And then when I started looking at uh, Scotch Gaelic or Scotch as a, or Scots as a language, I realized that they were still using a lot of those words, mm. you know, and that's what I just assumed was old country dialect. And it, it actually has roots over in Scotland and Northern Ireland. And that was, that was kind of neat for me because uh, a lot of us who, who have ancestors that, you know, for me, I'm, I don't know, I'm a seventh or eighth generation East Tennessean. It's, it's like I took my son one time, Paul. I know we're getting off subject. but No, you're good. We, I said, you want to see uh, seven generations of Browns leading up to you? And he's like, sure, Dad. So I pulled off I-40 and I stopped at one at Cave Creek Primitive Baptist Church and said, here's where William Brown was born. I'm buried. He's born in 1815. And I, here's where his son's buried, Jacob Brown. And, and literally within five miles, I showed him six generations of Browns buried. Oh, wow. Isn't that weird? I mean, it's it's interesting because most Americans pushed west. Yeah. My family didn't. Well, it's amazing. They they probably, it's some, one of the generations left Europe, left uh, the UK and decided to, uh, I mean, it, it, that was gutsy back then. Oh, yeah. It's super gutsy to do that. And they ended up uh, in East Tennessee and then they put roots down. So there must be something about East Tennessee. They, they, I guess, you know, they found something like, okay, this is, this is good. We can live here. And they have. And uh, it's interesting because when we went back to Northern Ireland, Paul, they have a place over there called the Irish, uh, I'm sorry, the Ulster American Folk Park. And it's a place where uh, you can go and see how our ancestors live, the Scots-Irish, uh, the Irish Catholics, et cetera, Protestant Northern Irish. And see how they live before they came over here. And it's amazing. If you ever get an opportunity to go, I highly encourage it for any American of uh, Irish or Scots-Irish stock. You will absolutely be blown away by the meticulous detail that these uh, that these folks went to to put this park together. It's amazing. Yeah, that's uh, really cool. And Rich, I, I don't. this isn't meant to freak you out. It, Brown's a fairly common name. My grandmother's maiden name is Brown. Um, there's a chance that you and I are distantly related, baby. 
Maybe, you know, if, if this is a really crazy story, and if, I, if you'll indulge me, I think it's an interesting one. So uh, we had our, I had a woman track me down one time. This was probably almost 20 years ago when, when DNA testing was in its infancy. And she's like, are you kin to Jacob Brown? I said, he, yeah, he was my great, great, great grandfather, born in 1854. She's like, okay, you're the one I'm looking for. I've tracked down, Jacob had two brothers, which I didn't know about. And I've, I've tracked a male from each one of those lines and I, they're all doing DNA. Will you do DNA? I'm like, uh, okay. I think I remember something about DNA in, in college briefly if I slept through it. So uh, I give it to her and the other two Browns come back related to each other, but not to me. I'm like, well, mm. that's weird. Matter of fact, I didn't, I wasn't related to any other Browns. I was related to all these Matlocks. Now in the 20 years since more Browns have popped up, but Still, it's all, um, I'm not Matlock, but uh, Macmillan. So one day we were at the Highland Festival because I knew we were Scottish. My brother plays the bagpipes and all that kind of stuff. And like I said, my grandfather uses the Scotch Gaelic and, and Scots language. So I knew that we hailed from somewhere over there. But when the Macmillan thing came up, I'm like, well, that's weird. So we went to this, the uh, Highland Games one year here in East Tennessee. And I was walking by the Clan Macmillan tent and I just kind of said, hey, to the guy who's standing there, this old gentleman that looked like Gandalf. He's got this long white beard. I'm serious, man. He's like six foot five old man with long hair and long beard. I said, Hey man, uh, I did my DNA and turns out I'm related to all these McMillans. And the guy grabbed me and he's like, you're a brown haired McMillan. Come in here. So he, I swear to God, I can't make this up. He pulls out this old book, Paul. And he's like, this is the Highland annals from 18, whatever. He said, here's how you became a Brown. And he reads this story to me. And the Cliff Notes version is that in Carrot Glen, there was this man named McMillan and he had three sons. And one day these uh, cattle thieves come down and they steal his cattle. Well, old man McMillan and his sons grab their swords and they take off after him in the night. And they there's a battle and they get their cattle back. Well, the youngest son does not come back for three days and the family thinks he's been killed. And finally, on the morning of the third day, through the mist, here comes the youngest uh, Macmillan's son, and he's got a, a sack full of their heads. Oh! And the father cries out, Molaka Mogilidan, you know, which is Scots Gaelic for my little hero, my brown-haired laddie. So from that moment, he took the last name Brown to distinguish himself from his cowardly brothers who didn't pursue the enemy. Ah! And th so that's where, that's where we became Browns. That is crazy. Isn't that nuts? That is completely nuts. What a great story. I know. Uh, actually, it was funny about it. My daughter is a professional artist, so we're taking that story. She is illustrated, and I'm going to have a children's book based on the story of the brown-haired laddie. And, and my wife is like, Richie, I don't think you can do a children's book about a guy cutting people's <laughs> heads off. I'm like, sure you can. There's great moral lessons in there. This is good stuff. Yeah, maybe the the head cutting off uh, maybe gets changed or something else if we're going true children's book. He slapped him on the wrist, and they... <laughs> that would be more twenty twenty one children's book, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. So, when you were in high school, what what did you think you wanted to do uh, as an adult? What's funny, man, is uh, I always knew I wanted to be in the military, and I I tell people that, and like, oh, really? Well, we had this amazing person that was in my young life named Pete Comadeca, and if you're out there, Pete, which I know he is, he's a he's an attorney in Ohio, was a phenomenal mentor to me, and he had uh, graduated from West Point, 
and he was in the army uh, as an officer. And I just thought he was the coolest thing. And when he would come into town, he had all these amazing stories, right, Paul? And he was, uh, and I remember asking him one time, like, how does the pay work? Do you, you guys get paid in the army? He's like, yeah, we get paid. Matter of fact, he, so he's, he's telling me about how the pay system works, how the rank system works. And how if you if you make it to 20 years, you get half pay for the rest of your life. And I was like, well, how much is that? And he, and I'm like nine or 10 years old, Paul. And he says, well, you know, he tells me the amount of money. And I remember, you know, asking my mom, I said, could I stay in a hotel for this amount of money? Because <laughs> for me, that was like that, that was that was the high point of life. I could just stay in a hotel. Somebody <laughs> would make my bed every day. I'd get fresh soap and towels every day. It's going to be that's going to be the, the dream, right? So I remember when I started, I've been married to the, to my high school sweetheart for, let's see, we got married 88, 33 years, but we, mm. so we junior prom, senior prom, and then 23 years of going to Marine Corps balls together. It was weird because it was like, I never had to grow up. I had the same girl. I went to all the high school dances with, and I went to all the dances in the Marine Corps with her for 23 years. But I say all that to say, I remember one day we were like juniors in high school. We're leaving church together. Cause that's what good Baptist boys and girls do. And I, I looked over at her in the car and I said, you know what, honey, I'm going to join the military. I'm going to retire as a Marine Corps officer. I'm going to travel the world. And if you want in on that, let's do it together. And she's like, okay. And she had never seen anybody that really thought that long term. And um, I, I executed that plan. That's fantastic. Uh, uh, by the way, the similarities continue. I also am Baptist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's what hap happens in East Tennessee and uh, Southwest Virginia. Not not a lot of uh, people outside of uh, Baptist. Faith. Well, the, you know, it's, I don't know if how much you've looked into this, but the you know the Scots Irish when we came over here, we were Presbyterians and we settled in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, all the way down into Western North Carolina, East Tennessee. Matter of fact, it, the the book that I bought at the Ulster American Folk Park there in Omaha, Northern Ireland, was uh, the Scots Irish of the Hills of East Tennessee. Hmm. Anyway, and how it's interesting, it's an interesting story about, uh, about religion and life on the frontier to understand how our ancestors became Baptist and not Presbyterian. Um, it, it's a really, really fascinating story, one that I didn't know until I started studying, but uh, it, it's it's worth your time to look into. Yeah, because being Baptist, uh, that's a, an American concept well there were the anabaptists that come over from somewhere in western europe i may have been switzerland i can't remember yeah. but the idea was that the presbyterian pre preachers uh had to ha be college graduates well on life on the frontier they're, they're so scattered out they they cannot get enough preachers that have four-year degrees to come from europe to come over and and be in the frontier so but guess what people still die on the frontier People still want to get married in the frontier. People, you know, so all these things were not being serviced. So what the Baptists did, the missionaries into the frontier of, uh, of colonial America said, look, uh, Paul, you're the lay reader for your community here at, at uh, Rooster Run, Virginia, right? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the lay reader. And people look up to you, right? Yeah, and we've been asking for a Presbyterian minister for years and a lot of these young children want to get married and, and so on. Okay, not a problem. Dominus Ominous, you're now the Baptist preacher here. Hmm. And just like that, like, oh, really? But I haven't been to school. I don't care if you can read and write. Somebody else can read for you. You know, 
And it gave the, them the ability to, to get married and have someone sanction that marriage and to say prayers for the dead, et cetera. That, so Presbyterians lost the ball on that one. Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, all right, so you, you chose the Marine Corps. Why the Marine Corps versus one of the other services? My uncle was a Marine that was killed in Vietnam. Uh, Danny was my mother's brother, and uh, he his recruiter talked him into quitting school in April, right before he would have graduated at the end of May. He says, hey, Danny, you know, the war is going to be over if you don't sign up right now and get the heck over there. So Danny, uh, like the good kid that he was, 17-year-old, signs the paperwork, uh, graduates recruit training at Paris Island in July of 1966 and is dead and buried by the end of August of 1966. Oh, wow. So he wasn't even in the Marine Corps, what, four and a half months, and he was already shot and killed in Quang Tri, Vietnam. So he died uh, barely over 18. Wow. So I had that legacy, uh, but really it, it acted more as a deterrent because my mother was <laughs> dead set that her two sons were not going to be Marines. And guess what? Me and my brother both joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> I don't know if a spider or what, but it was the, the, the long story short of it. So I get married right after high school and I'm working a job and I had a boss who was a, an absolute stud, another mentor in my life. And his name was John. And I remember saying, you know, John was it physically in amazing shape. He was probably in his late twenties. He was the manager of the store. He's got, a dozen girlfriends. And if somebody lipped off to me, just punched him in the face. I thought this guy was an absolute animal and I love something about it. I just love this guy. So I'm like, man, John, how do, how do you do this? He's like, brother, everything you see, I learned in the Marine Corps. Hmm. Okay. So that was kind of floating around in my mind. And when it came time to, I started thinking about what branch of service I want to join. I bought a book from the library called, I think it was called, a guide to planning your military service or, or something like that. And uh, I remember reading it and kind of dog earing it and highlighting it. And I told my young wife who was 18 at the time too. And I said, Hey, you know, what do you think if I was to pick up a branch of service, which one do you think seems more like my personality? And she said, well, the Marines after she read certain parts of it, I said, Hmm, that's what I thought. And then one day I'm at the guns show with my Buddy John, my manager, my my boss slash friend, and he runs into a Marine that he knew at 29 Palms, California. Oh. And he says, um, hey, Rich, come here. I want you to meet Gunny Jacks. And as soon as I saw the, the guy wearing his dress blues, I figured he was probably a recruiter. And I'm like, I'm, I'm skedaddling out of there, man, because I did not want to get recruited right then. I, I knew I was going to join eventually, but on my time, which – you know, who knows when that would have happened. So what's interesting about the way I got recruited I, from my 14 years on recruiting, I definitely know the uh, language that he used and the skill steps that he used to corral me into the Marine Corps was genius. Here's what he did. He says, uh, so Rich, tell me about yourself. And I'm, I'm being real dismissive. I'm giving him single word answers. Yeah, no, well, yes, sir. Right. Finally, he goes, Rich, where do you see yourself in five years? I go, in five years? Well, that's, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to be a police officer with the Knoxville Police Department and <clears throat> probably on their SWAT team and I hope to be a detective someday. He's like, hmm. 
And tell me about yourself. So what do you do right now? You work with John, right? At the mall. Mm-hmm. You, you're, you work at the mall. Okay. And uh, let me, let me re- help you with something, Rich. You're an average white guy. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, yes, sir. Hmm. Uh, you worked at the mall. And then before that, you were in high school and you fried chicken. Am I missing anything? I'm like, no, sir. <laughs> He's like, okay. Let me, let's do this. Let's say you've got, you're, you're the hiring manager at the Knoxville Police Department. You got a, two resumes come across your desk. One of them has, and then he starts listing his resume. And it was crazy impressive, Paul. Trained at this FBI school, f- fought in Beirut, sniper, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all this good stuff. He goes, and he, this white boy that has all these credentials. And then you got this white guy who cooked chicken and then he got a job at the mall. Who are you going to hire? So I'm going to hire the guy with that other stuff. He's like, yeah, that's me, pal. I'm going to take a job from you. (laughs) I'm like, dang it, he's got me. He said, that's why I mean you need to get together so I can show you how you can get that kind of resume where you can get that job. I'm like, yes, sir. He he wasn't wrong, right? He wasn't wrong. He was absolutely on point. And uh, so from then, I give him my phone number. And that was on a Sunday, Paul. Guess what happened Monday morning? He called you. Yes. Actually, his recruiter called me. He was the, I didn't realize it then, but he was the gunny and he ran the office. So one of his sergeants called me. <clears throat> I'm laying in bed with my, my lovely bride bright and early and phone rings and it's the phone's on her side of the bed. And she says, there's some guy, Sergeant Camaro with the Marines. His, his actual name was Quamaro, strangely enough. Only Quamaro I ever met. But, and uh, what I realize now, he asked me all the questions to screen me out it seems like a conversation but what he's really doing is screening me to see if i qualify i did and he set an appointment with me and uh the rest is history i guess so from the time you met the gunny to the time you actually signed up how much time had passed Ooh, that's a great question i met the gunny on let's say i I'm going to say probably late February. I, I literally, I joined probably three or four days later. Now I didn't ship until I joined in late February. I shipped in April because I had to, you know, pack my stuff up, get out of my apartment, uh, take my wife back to her family, which was not a good thing. Uh, but I, I, one of the things I told her, Paul, and this is something that I sincerely meant at the time and, and still feel this way that I told her, I said, in order to be the man I need to be for you, the man I need to be is the father of our children one day. I have to do this. I just have to do this. I have to test myself and it's going to give us a good career. And it's something I've always wanted to do. And, and she supported it, bless her heart. And uh, she went on that 23 year long, year long ride with me. Yeah. So uh, I, they're very, I, I've, I don't think I've met a Marine uh, that's regretted serving in the Marine Corps. It's a good, I don't think I have either. Hmm. Now there's been, you know, obviously, and I think you and I would agree with this, that there are times in the army or in the Marine Corps, you're like, man, what was I thinking? As you're going through it, you're like, man, I'm I'm not sure why I'm here. Yeah. And like people say, you know, I heard this in the Marine infantry, you know, never make a decision going uphill. You're going uphill. (laughs) Don't, you know, (laughs) if you could get out of it when you were going uphill in the Marine Corps or the army with a 70 pound rucksack on your back, like, Hey man, you can have it. That's worse to live by there. Yeah. <laughs> Never make an important decision going uphill. That's that's new. Nope. That's brilliant. Uh, all right. So everybody's got fun stories from basic. Uh, do you, you have a story or two from Paris Island? 
you know, I, because I was the only member of the family to, you know, that to go through Paris Island, I really didn't have a whole lot of stories. Matter of fact, the only other Marine I knew than John growing up was my, my friend's dad. And this is kind of a tragic story. My best friend growing up was Steve. And uh, I won't say his last name. And Steve's father had been a Marine, fought multiple tours in Vietnam. And he always seemed a little off, even to me as a kid, because he would like offer us booze as, as a little kid, or mm. you boys want to chew this tobacco, you know, just kind of strange. And, and um, so one day he's in the VA hospital, the psych ward, and uh, Steve comes home and his father has, is laying there dead at the house in his psych robes. I uh, come home and commit suicide. So, and Full Metal Jacket had just come out, as you probably remember, in 1987. Here I am in 1989. So I'm, I'm like, let the brainwashing begin. I, I, I've seen the movie, and I figure it's probably going to be like that. And it was. It was a lot like that, only in a lot of ways a lot worse than that. Because, you know, this is, gosh, 30-something years ago. And back then... You know, that they did physically rough you up a little bit, and I'm sure some of that still goes on. I mean, they, they'll tell you to their face that it doesn't, but not, you and I both know stuff like that happens in the squad bays. So, yeah, it, it was uh, it was not a pleasurable experience, but it was a, it was a necessary one. Um, I don't regret it at all. I mean, as far as like a funny story, I, I started – I had a knack for imitating people back then. I don't think I'd do it anymore, so – the other recruits would be like, Hey, uh, make, you know, do staff Sergeant Woods or, or do Sergeant McKnight or, or do Captain Kimbrell. So the word gets around that, Oh, private Brown can do the senior drill instructors. He's imitating you guys behind your back. So then they want to see it. And, um, so one night in the field now, so now they're relaxing a little bit. This is several weeks before graduation. And, and they're like, get me on stage and have me do the entire command staff. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Do Captain Gabriel and, and all this stuff. And the, and the captain thought I did good enough. He was rolling like, he actually gave me some of his captain's bars. So <laughs> uh, I didn't have a stand up uh, comedian career after that. I probably should have tried it. Yeah. Well, if you, I mean, if your unit wanted you to uh, impersonate all those folks, you maybe should have tried it. Yeah. But it was fun. Uh, Paris Island was good. I actually went back. I spent my last six years on Paris Island and retired from there. We absolutely love that place. Uh, Thomas Ricks wrote a book called Making the Corps. And for those listening out there, if you want a sense of the Marine Corps, it's actually a really, really good book. And his journey toward writing the book was he was in Somalia, and he is, I think, a, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, if I remember correctly. And they're like, okay, Mr. Ricks, you know, uh, you're going to go out tonight, and your patrol leader is going to be corporal smith and he looks at corporal smith this this kid right here is like he doesn't look like 21 he's like yeah i am 21 and thomas rick said you know we wouldn't let a 21 year old run the copier at the wall street journal and here you are you're gonna you're leading a combat patrol at night in somalia and he's like where the heck do they find these people how do they make them so he petitions the marine corps and gets permission i say all that to say at the beginning of the book, he talks about how going on to Paris Island, you have to cross this long causeway. And it's almost like when the new recruits go on, on to Paris Island, it's, it, they're like they're going into the womb to gestate. And when they're, they leave as Marines, they're coming out the birthing canal. I mean, it, it, he's 
a much better writer than I am a speaker, but I think he has a point about the Marine Corps does a really good job of instilling the warrior ethos into the Marines that leave Paris Island. They do a phenomenal job at that. Call it brainwashing what you will. But Paris Island's main job is to inoculate the, the young men and women to interpersonal violence so that they don't hesitate when the moment comes and they have to employ force against another human being. And that's like their main charge and something that they do extraordinarily well. Yeah. It's, it's uh, in some ways unfortunate that it comes to that sometimes, but we've got to do what we've got to do to protect what uh, we care about here in yes, this sir. country. And that means some folks are going to have to do some, uh, some violent things. Uh, Thomas Ricks, I think was also the guy who wrote a book about the, uh, the lead up to the uh, Iraq war in 03. Yeah. Fiasco. Uh, he, yeah. Yeah. He's a fantastic writer. Uh, yes, I think I read is. Fiasco a couple of times. Yeah. That, that was something. Uh, that's another great book. I mean, read that. You're like, Oh man, we really, we really made a mess of this thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm an OIF veteran and uh, I tell people as a citizen, we shouldn't have gone, but uh, when duty calls, duty calls. You go. Yep. Uh, all right. So it, like uh, Full Metal Jacket, which, by the way, the first hour of that movie or the first 50 minutes or so, the best 50 minutes in movie history, in my opinion. I, I, I absolutely love everything that Arlie Ermey did in that movie. It, it was fantastic. I, I've watched that 50 minutes probably 80 times. It is a masterful performance. And uh, it's probably the closest you will ever get to Paris Island. Now, of course, if, if you've been there, then you know that there's not the senior drill instructor is your daddy. He, he's the father figure. He's the nice guy, you know, and, and whereas his his heavies, the other five or six uh, are, that are stalking the platoon at all times are not your friend. Uh, so that that juxtaposition is probably the only thing that they got wrong. I know why they did it. Uh, took a little license with how things are run there, but but it gives you enough of a sense of what Paris Island is like. Yeah, you, you put one guy in that position to be the the stalker, the the uh, tough guy. Kind of hard to tell the story through the uh, eyes of five different folks. Exactly. And you, and you know what his original job was on that movie? I think he was going to be a technical advisor, wasn't he? Yeah, he was going to be a technical advisor, and he was showing the actor how to do it and the context around it. And they're like, uh, Pollock's like, okay, we're just going to use you as the, as the guy. And it, uh, and it thank worked God. Out. Yeah. No kidding. Cool. All right. So like in that movie, uh, did you learn what your MOS or your specialty was going to be at the end of basic or did you learn be beforehand? <clears throat> Excuse me. The way the Marine Corps works is, every Marine enlists on some sort of program. So they call it the EIP, the enlisted enlistment option program, EIP, EOP, whatever. Anyway, uh, enlistment incentive program. So I was a nine Sierra going in, which, and what that means is I signed up for six years. That's right. Six years. I don't need, they don't do that anymore, but in order for six years, you get guaranteed East coast or West coast or overseas. So I, I wanted East coast. I didn't want to go to California for, reasons that may seem obvious today, <laughs> but uh, it was guaranteed East coast. And I think I got PFC right out of boot camp, and I got to pick my MOS. So I was going to be an infantryman. So that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and the, the reason for that, I actually talked to the Navy recruiter first. And uh, when, before I had ever ran into gunny jacks right after high school, I, I thought I, I want to be an, uh, a Navy seal. 
So I went to the Navy recruiter and he gives me the practice test. We call it the East, the essential subjects test. And it's the, the thing you give somebody before you give them the actual ASVAB, that uh, Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery Test. So he gives me this thing and he's like, oh my God, you know, you, you score high enough. You can be nukes. You know, I'm going to give you a nuke contract. You're going to work in a reactor in a submarine. And I'm like, no, sir. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you're going to do. I said, no, sir. I, I said, I respect you. My dad was in the Navy, but if I do this, I want to be Naval Special Warfare. No, no, no. You want to be nukes. God just absolutely wouldn't. It, it, I would probably chip paint for four years after washing out of buds and he could have had a Navy contract, but, but he did not. He said, you know, he was sold on me being nukes. So when I went to the Marine Corps, same thing happened. I scored really high on the ASVAB and they're immediately like, you could do anything. You, you know, you want to do Intel, you want to do avionics. I'm like, sir, all I want to do is carry a rifle and blow stuff up. That's all I want to do. Well, to get that job, you got to, you got to do this program. Fantastic. <clears throat> so yeah, I knew I was going to be infantry going in. Okay, so you knew before you even went to Paris Island. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what was uh, school like after BASIC to learn how to be? Well, you're an infantryman at BASIC as well. Everybody learns to be an infantryman, but you're getting uh, deeper skill development uh, after that. And what do you call the school after BASIC for the Marines? Uh, it, it's You go to the School of Infantry. Everybody goes there. I think this is the way. I've been retired now for almost 10 years. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, Marine combat training was something brand new. It had, I think I was the third or fourth class to go through. What, what that did was back then they had something called basic warrior training. So you, you went through several weeks of BWT and boot camp to earn the title Marine. Then you went to Marine combat training for four weeks to learn more basic infantry skills. And after you graduated MCT, then you went out to if you were going to be a butcher or baker, or candlestick maker, whatever your job is going to be in the Marine Corps, then you went off to that specific job school. But because I was going to be a grunt, I just had to drag my sea bag a few blocks down to the school, to the infantry training battalion, which is also part of the school of infantry at Camp Geiger, which ultimately I would come back and be an instructor at the school of infantry. But, but that was a, that was a good time uh, learning the actual craft of being an infantryman, I absolutely loved it. I have a fear of heights, Paul. Mm. So like the rappel tower in boot camp was terrifying for me. The rappel, <clears throat> rappelling out of uh, fast roping out of helicopters, all that stuff was always terrifying. Matter of fact, my fear of heights was so bad that I, I started taking flight lessons as a 16-year-old kid as a way to overcome my fear of heights. Like I'm going to get up there and I started flying planes by myself. After 12 hours, I got to solo. So here I, here I'm a 16 year old kid. I've got my student pilot's license before I've even had a driver's license because I'm trying to overcome that fear of heights. And I hate to tell you that 52 years on, I still don't like heights. Uh, but at least I know I can conquer them when I have to. But if given the choice, I am not going to jump out of a helicopter tomorrow. Yeah, I, I have the same irrational fear, but of snakes. If you put yeah. a snake anywhere within 20 feet of me, I, I'm a little schoolgirl. I can't. I can't stand snakes. Uh, but if, if you told me I had to hold one or uh, something really bad was going to happen, I, I'll hold, hold it as long as I need to. But exactly. yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to choose to uh, in most scenarios. Same here. Yeah. Uh, so we, I used to know this about the Marine Corps, but the unit structure, obviously the, the bases, team, squad, platoon, company, 
battalion. And then, then I is are there brigades or are they called something else after that? Well, after the battalion, there's a regiment. Okay. And, and there's multiple regiments within a division. <clears throat> so I go off to uh, when I graduate there. I go get my bride, and I and they tell me you're going to Second Battalion, Second Marines, and there. So I graduated. Let's see, the School of Infantry. I think I graduated late October, and they're like, we're we're doing an Okinawa deployment in January, January the eighth. We're leaving. But I'm like, I haven't seen my wife in six months, except for a minute here or a minute there. I, and we're young kids, right? I'm like, I, I got to get her to here to Jacksonville. And people really were down on me. Like, look, uh, Lance Corporal Brown, you don't need to be bringing your wife here. She's going to be moving her back in six weeks. I'm like, I hear you. Yes, sir. But I got to get her here. And I honestly think that that's part of the reason why she's still here today. Because if we could make time for each other, we made time for each other no matter the hardship. So I, I brought her to Jacksonville. We had six weeks together and it was really good for our relationship. And then I had to move her back. I think she stayed with my parents during my Okinawa deployment. And that deployment was during the troubles in the Philippines. So I had to deploy down there twice on air, air contingency alert because the, the coup had happened, uh, I think in December of 89. And this was, January of 1990. So it's still pretty hot with the new people's army trying to take over the country. So I got to do some pretty cool stuff in uh, the Philippines. Uh, got my scuba divers license while we were in Okinawa, Japan. And then I came back from that July, Paul, and in August of 1990. So a month later, Saddam Hussein invades uh, Kuwait, as you will remember. Were you there? I was at Bragg. Uh, I was in ROTC. It was right after my junior year. I was supposed to graduate from that six-week training on the 1st. That same day, Fort Bragg became vacated. The entire uh -huh. 82nd Airborne Division was gone that day. H headed over to uh, the Saudi and, and, and uh, with plans to, uh, to kick Saddam and his, his guys out. Yeah. Now, now, did you deploy for that, or did you already got your MOS? Uh, not no, I was a, I was still in college. My, gotcha. it's funny. My 45 year old dad deployed for that. Wow. Uh, and, I, and I'm watching it on TV, drinking, drinking a beer as a senior in college. That's so weird how stuff like that works. Yeah. So, uh, what's interesting about that was, uh, we had just gotten back. So all, like you said, uh, Paul, very similar with the Marine Corps. As soon as it happens within a week or two, ever, you know, Camp Lejeune's a ghost town. All the guys that were, you know, getting ready to do some other deployments, they take off. And I remember them literally laughing at us like, you're going to miss the war, dude. You know, second battalion, second range, you're going to be sitting in the rear and just being like, crap, <clears throat> we're going to miss this thing. Well, and then uh, in December, they issue us all of our gear, like the first week of December. Like, that doesn't mean you're leaving, but just in case the order comes down, we want everybody to have their desert gear. And we were a cold weather battalion. I don't know if the Army kind of breaks it up like that, but the Marine Corps back then did, and we were like the Arctic battalion. <clears throat> we did. And I was getting ready to go to uh, Arctic Squad Leader School for a deployment to Norway and everything. Well, I get kicked out of that school like a few days in, and like, we're going. So off we went to Desert Storm, and uh, I think January the 1st, we pushed out of uh, – that little camp 15 or Al-Jabal, whatever it was, port and moved north along the border until the war got started. 
Mm. And then what was interesting, for some reason, my mother was convinced I was on the ship because at the time, that was the, the Marines are in the, in the water waiting for amphibious landing. So she didn't understand that there were several infantry battalions that were sitting right across the berm waiting for this sneak attack invasion. So we're writing letters back and forth. And she's like, I know that you're just telling me you're on shore. I'm, I'm sorry. You're just telling me you're in the sand because you don't want me to think that you're on ship waiting to do the invasion. And I finally, I just picked up a handful of sand, dumped it in an envelope and said, I don't know where you're getting this crap. I'm actually on the dirt. <clears throat> oh man. So the, the burn, the burn was the burn between Saudi Arabia and Iraq, right? That's correct. Yeah. 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 And, and what's interesting. So that hundred hours of combat is all the combat I ever saw. However, I will say that because our battalion was the spearhead for the second Marine division. And because my job as a uh, fire support coordinator for the battalion commander, I was on his command track. I got to, I got to be involved in a lot of fire missions up close and personal. So it was, uh, other guys may have been riding in the back of a five ton eating MREs, but I was pretty busy for those hundred hours running, running different missions. So it was a crazy chaotic uh, time for me at that point in my life. I was, I think I just turned 21 and had a lot of responsibility, as you can imagine being on the net with, artillery units and OV-10 Bronco pilots back then. We had those who were running spotter missions for us, and it was just a crazy time. It's one of the most stressful uh, assignments uh, in the military is calling calling for fire. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. Uh, so after that, I came back from that. Uh, while I was there, and because of my close proximity, the colonel – he, him and the Sergeant Majors brings, bring me on to be their driver. So I get to go to high risk personnel course at Quantico to learn how to kind of be in a little executive protection stuff because we were getting ready to do our med float and we were going to be going to North Africa, the Middle East, Europe. And so I did that I, as his driver slash executive protection detail guy. And uh, after that deployment, I came back. <clears throat> pardon me and i uh, went to the school of infantry where i was an instructor i taught uh i was an 0311 instructor rifleman instructor so i taught uh patrolling military operations and urban terrain close combat uh you name it it was a really really good three-year tour of mentoring and molding future warfighters enjoyed the heck out of that it's one of the best jobs on earth yes sir totally yeah uh, all right, so you're you retire as a CW three, and you and I were talking before we started recording. Like uh, in the army, you, you can be a, a pilot as a chief warrant officer. You can be uh, food service can be your specialty. Maintenance of equipment can be your specialty. Uh, you can be a weapons expert, but you, your specialty is something that the other you were telling me nobody else does it the way the Marine Corps does it. Tell me, tell me more about what you ended up doing for most of your Marine career. Sure. So a after that tour in um, at the School of Infantry, I decided to get out of the Marine Corps. I'm a sergeant. I almost re-enlisted. I came right up to the edge of it and then backed away and got out and was a, spent three years as a cop uh, and a special operations guy with the Sheriff's Department. <clears throat> but I'd stayed in the reserves, Paul. So what that enabled me to do was to get promoted. So I picked up staff sergeant in the reserves and thought, okay, well, at least I'll have some sort of retirement from the military. And then I hated being a cop. 
for a variety of reasons we can go on to whenever. But I wanted to get back in the Marine Corps. Actually, that's not true. I didn't know that I could get back in the Marine Corps. So I thought I'll go on and do this uh, recruiter aid thing, get paid as a staff sergeant. And that'll give me an opportunity to find another police department because they can't all be as bad as the one that I was in. <clears throat> so that was what I was going to do. Well, when I became a recruiter aide, turns out I had a knack for it. And when I had been the colonel's driver, I had really wanted to be a recruiter. But the colonel had been a recruiting station commander and the sergeant major had been on recruiting. And they told me every horror story, Paul. They were like, hey, Corporal Brown, you do not want to do this. You do not. You do not. And I'm like, really? I think I'd be pretty good at it. They're like, no, no, no. You don't. You, trust me. I. It's, it's a bloodbath. Nobody gets out. Nobody does well. It's just a terrible, torturous three years. I'm like, really? So I, I didn't do it. I got out. When I got on recruiting, it turns out I was right. I was incredibly good at it. So I start winning all these awards, and I, they give me my own station to run. I, I do that incredibly well. I'm not bragging. It's one of the matter of fact, let, let's have this conversation real quick. Because you remember from your time in the Army that if, if you're in one battalion, like 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, juxtaposed against 3rd Battalion, 8th Marines, who's better? Well, well, I don't know. There's no real metric to say who's better. You know, it's like, I don't know. Well, here on recruiting duty, everything is qualitative and quantitative. Data is kept on every single thing you do. And I can say I'm better than you. You know, in, in the recruiting world, I like that. I like the competitiveness of I'm the man. And I like the fact that the Marine Corps, who never rewarded me for being an infantryman, I was I was putting out the same amount of uh, work and getting rewarded for it right and left. So I, I like that. So I decided to stay and uh, I, I decided I was a gunnery sergeant. And I remember my commander saying, you know, you're going to be a great master gunnery sergeant someday, Gunny Brown. I said, yeah, sir, you know, I don't think I want to be a master gunny. He's like, you don't? I said, no, sir, I want to be an officer. So that led to, well, they've got that new re recruiting chief warrant officer program. It's only a year or two old. You know, maybe you can do that. I'm like, yes, sir, I'd love to do that. So um, at the time, what's interesting about this, since we're talking about it, I fell in love with this billet called the contact team officer and he was stationed at Paris Island and, and it was a major. It was only majors could be the contact team officer, but the majors had to have had a tour on recruiting duty. So at the time, staff Sergeant Brown, I looked at this major and I saw what he did and the impact he had. I said, I want to be the contact team officer of the sixth Marine Corps district. Now, when I've told that story to one or two people before, I've, that's the only people I've ever told it to us. It's, it's like saying, I want to be an astronaut. Because I'm a staff sergeant. How the heck am I ever going to become a major to be the contact team officer? Well, lo and behold, I'm happy to tell you that when I was the chief one officer three, I became the contact team officer of the 6th Marine Corps District and, um, and took that major's position. So uh, I enjoyed my time on recruiting, but one of the downsides of it was I'm a gunnery sergeant on the morning of 9-11. Hmm. And... Um, because I was a career recruiter by then, it's blood in, blood out. Once you become a career recruiter, you can never deploy again. You are stuck. 
And I was never, never able to deploy during the entire GWAT. And what's strange about that is, so the commandant of the Marine Corps comes to Paris Island and he's, I mean, he's got sand on his boots, Paul. He just come back from Iraq and this is in 2006, maybe. And he, and he, he has all the officers show up at the, at the, uh, at the base theater. And he tells us, it looks us all in the face. He says, let me tell you something, boys, you go home tonight. You tell mama you're going to the war. And so this is a four-star general, the commandant of the Marine Corps. He's, he's like, the man. He's the man. Yeah. He's the man. The buck stops with him. He's got the, he's got the house on right down the street from the president's. Right. And he says, tell mama, kiss the kids. You're going. And uh, sure enough, he had this big thing. So every Marine to the fight. So I'm like, Hey, Roger that. I've been, I'd, I'd love to go back to combat. You know, I've, absolutely. I'm down with that. So I tell my wife, I'm like, Hey babe, I'm going and she's crying. And, and the commandant said, here's what everybody in this theater is going to do tonight. You tell your wives or your husbands, you're going to the fight. And then tomorrow morning, you get on the phone, you call your monitor and you say, I just heard the commandant's speech. Ever read the fight. Where can I go to the war? So the next morning I do like a good chief warrant officer. I get on the phone to my monitor, Lieutenant Colonel, whoever he was up at uh, headquarters, Marine Corps. I said, hey, sir, Chief Warren Officer Brown down here at Paris Island. I'm supposed to call you and tell you I want to go, I want an IE billet and get, get in the fight for the next, you know, it was like a six or six or nine month tour. I would just go over there, get in the fight, and then come back to Paris Island. So it was no big deal. He says, who told you to call me? Said, the, com <laughs> the commandant of the Marine Corps, sir, he was just here. He told me, to call. he told all the officers, we've got to call our monitor. He's like, yeah, bro, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, a, this lieutenant colonel's telling me that he's got more juice than a four star. I said, well, sir, I'm just telling you, I, I've looked at the IA billets. I'll take this one in Iraq or I'll take this one in in, uh, in Afghanistan. He says, yeah, pal, hold on a second. You're an, a, Mar a Marine Corps admin message is coming out in just a few minutes. I'll ever Marine the Marine Corps. You're going to see you're not going anywhere. So just relax. And literally, uh, Paul, within an hour, this message come out and it said, it's every Marine in the Marine Corps, it says, the commandant has been going around speeching his message, every Marine to the fight, with the exception of 4810s, which I was a recruiting operations officer. And I think there was one other, one other weird <laughs> widget guy. And there was like, so there was 18 people in the Marine Corps, the two widget guys, and then the 16 of us that were recruiting operations officers that not even the commandant could get us over there. Yeah. Uh, so he met everybody, but you, you 18. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, my wife, I'm like, okay, you can relax, babe. The messages came out. I can't leave, which I'd kind of heard that before because when they were standing up the Afghani army, uh, general McMiniman had received a message from headquarters Marine Corps. Like, Hey, we want to send some career recruiters over there to teach, how to recruit in these Afghani villages, which is bananas. Like I have the cultural, I know the culture norms and mores to, to be successful teaching Afghanis how to recruit other Afghanis. It was just nuts anyway, <clears throat> but that's what they wanted to do. So I had tried to get on that team and general Miniman's like, they can have a couple of master gunnies, but they're not taking my officers. Mm. So go sit down Brown. <laughs> and that was that. 
So when when you were in recruiting as uh, a CW three, and you were a CW two, I'm mm-hmm. guessing in recruiting. Yeah. Uh, when you were in those roles, at what point did you realize you were never leaving recruiting until you got out of the Marine Corps? Everybody back then there was a thing called when you become an eighty four twelve, which is a career recruiter. You had a one year probationary period, and that you could say, forget it, send me back to the fleet. I don't want to stay on recruiting duty. Even though you had jumped through every hoop and been very successful, just to be invited to become a career recruiter, they still gave you a year. Well, as soon as the planes flew into the buildings, like the next day or two, they said, everybody that's on a probationary status, which I was, I had three months left on my probation. uh, I could have given it up, said, no, you're all, they called it anybody in the IMOS, the probationary period. You're now it's been revoked. You're stuck on career. You're a career recruiter forever now. Mm. So I knew September the twelfth or thirteenth when that order came out that I could never leave. Yeah, and they knew that uh, those wars would not be quick, probably at the time, or had that suspicion, and they knew yeah. they were going to need to recruit. Yeah, and uh, if you want to talk about recruiting on nine eleven, that's an interesting story. I can tell you about it. Sure, because everybody remembers where they were that day. Of course, I was. I had just handed over my substation on Saturday morning. Uh, and so I was going up to Nashville to be the uh, operations chief, but for whatever my replacement Gunny Hobbs had not arrived yet. He had came down Saturday for the turnover and then he was going to come in some day that week. And I'm just kind of minding the fort for a day or two while the movers pack my household goods up. And the, fl- the planes fly into the buildings and our phones start ringing. I'm like, huh. Because to me, it was a, having grown up in the era where hearing people talk about Pearl Harbor, I'm like, okay, this is kind of our Pearl Harbor, you know, is the way I looked at it. <clears throat> and the phone was ringing because people were wanting to get out of their contract. They didn't want to ship to boot camp. So I'm, I'm looking at my board that has all my guys and gals on it, Paul, that are about to ship to boot camp, and either they're calling me or their mama's calling me. And we were co-located with the Army recruiter, the Navy recruiter, the Air Force recruiter. We're all in this building together. And there are, all of our phones were ringing, and all everybody was backing out. Our appointments for that day, or heck, our appointments for that week all called and canceled. So I get the public affairs Marine calls me and he's a sergeant. He says, Hey, Gunny Brown, uh, do you have anybody down there to enlist? I'm like, no, all my appointments have canceled. You know, my recruiters on the phone trying to save every kid we can because we need shippers for this. this Presumably is going to be a war we're fixing to go into. And uh, I don't have anybody. Don't call me. (laughs) Well, he he calls every state and and Tennessee for the listener out there is, is the volunteer state. That's what the, the moniker of Tennessee, because we have always kind of volunteered for wars going back as far as you want to go back. And, um, but here in the volunteer state, nobody's volunteering. Mm. So this uh, sergeant calls me back about an hour later. He's like, he's like, Gunny, you don't have anybody. I've called every single station in the entire state of Tennessee. There's nobody, not a single person. Because what I didn't know was the media, there's vans full of media at the recruit, the head recruiting headquarters. And they want to write a story about some brave young American that wants to serve his country in this new war that it appears we're fixing to enter. And nobody was there. Hmm. So they spent hours there that, that day waiting with the engines running and there was nowhere for them to go. 
And, and that, that hurts people when I tell them that story, but that is the God's honest truth because there's a mythos that surrounds 9-11 that says Americans poured into the recruiting stations. That absolutely did not happen. And, and once more about that, they were, they were recreating a recruiting museum at Paris Island, and the master gunnery sergeant is, is a good friend of mine now. He says, hey, sir, I understand you were a gunny on recruiting duty at, at 9-11. I said, yes, I was. He says, can I interview you for this museum? I said, you're not going to want to hear what I have to tell you because it's not what anybody wants to hear. I've told this story before and it really angers people. And he said, I said, go do your homework and find out if the, there is really any truth to this long line. So he goes, he comes back the next day and he drops on my desk several PDFs from the Brookings Institute and the Cato Institute, several others, think tanks that that run the numbers and found that this is just a lie and that we've told ourselves as part of the American conscious that that people lined up and that it just didn't happen. So one one final thing on that terrible day. This this little old man who we call him a red hatter, he's a former Marine who likes to come in the Marine Corps office and chat with the young Marines. And he had fought in World War II. And he comes in that day, Paul, and he says, where are they at, Sarge, or whatever he called me? <clears throat> I said, I think the guy, we'll call him Roy. I said, what are you talking about, Roy? He goes, where, where, where's the kids joining the Marine Corps? We've been attacked. I said, they're not here. And the guy starts tears rolling down his cheeks. Mm. And he sits down on my couch and he tells me the saddest story about how on December the 7th, I think it was a Sunday, he said, you know, him and his father and his two brothers loaded up in like the old Model T and they drove into the Putnam County, Tennessee. And he said, we had to wait for days sleeping on strangers' couches or sleeping in the vehicle. The women brought food out to us and there was a line of cars as far as the eye could see in any direction trying to get to the recruiter. And finally on the third day, they took me and my brother, told our dad he was too old. He went home. He died during World War II. I never saw him again. My brother was killed on Tarawa or whatever. You know, I told this sad story, and he's like, and this is the America that that I live in now. It just broke his heart, and it broke my heart, too. Um, but that's that's my 9-11 experience, man. And it's not a pretty one for, for those people out there that think um, something else happened. Yeah, it breaks my heart, too. I, I guess um... – I, I didn't know. I didn't realize that. I I assumed that the media and our government were maybe not misleading, but embellishing a little bit about what what that looked like. I do remember uh, one particular news story where they were interviewing a couple of kids who went to Duke University, and they were both juniors and going to graduate soon. And they decided to leave school to join the Marine Corps, the Army, something like that. And I'm like, oh wow, that's amazing. And I just assumed that that was happening across the board. Now I understand that that was very much the exception. The good news is we, we did have lots of people that were willing to volunteer to do hard things, but it, it wasn't, sounds like it wasn't nearly the, uh, the response that you and I would have wished for. Certainly our, our parents or grandparents would have wished for. No. And I'll tell you <clears throat> as someone, as a recruiting operations officer, you know, track all the statistics and everything like that from what's called mirrors data, which is the big DOD data and you can just you can look at the graph and it just falls off a cliff. The mm -hmm. recruiting numbers did. So uh, the recruiting recruiting got really hard after well, it was it was difficult in the late nineties, but it really got difficult after uh, nine eleven because now, you know, before you're selling a 
parent on why they should sign the the parental consent form to let little Johnny or little Jane join the military. And you have to tell them to their face, like it, it could happen. You know, your, your son or daughter could go to war. Well, after 9-11, the kids knew what time it was. So the Americans that did pony up for the past 20 years are some of the finest Americans ever. So I guess on a happy note, the people that signed up after 9-11 and, and a lot of them answered the call are probably the the bravest Americans I've ever had the privilege to serve with because they went in knowing that when they put, put their right hand in the air and signed that DD form eight or whatever it is to enlist that they're signing a blank check and they're probably going to see combat in their time. Yeah. Especially true for the, uh, the Marine Corps. I, I will say as an army guy and I, the Navy's pretty large, the air force is not massive compared to those two, but still pretty large. There's some stat when I uh, came back from my deployment, it was something like less than 10% of the folks to ever put on the uniform end up in a combat uh, environment. Yeah. And, and that was another thing I've, I've talked about this on, of course, I'm a professional podcaster, as you've alluded to earlier. And I've, I've talked about it once or twice, but I lost seven, three, three young men I put in the Marine Corps were killed in combat. As a matter of fact, this town I live in, I feel like it has ghosts in it because this highway 111 is named after Jeremiah Savage, a kid that I put in the Marine Corps who I wouldn't say he's like a son to me, but you know, he was just this amazing young man. Again, one of the finest young men this country ever produced. He gave his life in Iraq. There's a high, there's a bridge I cross over uh, named after Morgan Strader, who's another young man that uh, I put in the Marine Corps. So I see this every day. Their sacrifice never leaves me. I never not think about them and their young lives cut short. One of my best friends, Terry Ball, was killed over there. So it, it was tough sitting on the sidelines, having to watch this war unfold and being a recruiting uh, guy and, and knowing that there's no way you can get to the fight. This is, It was a strange thing to be a former grunt deploying all the time. I think by the time I was 22, I had went to 20 something different countries mm. and now the biggest war in, in our, you know, the longest war in our history. And I'm an active duty Marine Corps officer and I cannot go. You're one of 18 mar Marines yeah. not allowed to go. That cannot go. It's a strange. Yeah. Super weird. I mean, the math on that is incredibly, uh, un unusual, rare. Yeah. Yeah, we grew the we grew the force from one hundred and eighty something thousand Marines to two hundred and two thousand at the at the peak of the of the surge. So, out of two hundred two thousand Marines, there was like you said, eighteen guys guys and gals that couldn't go. That's crazy. The yeah. the math is uh, kind of hard to comprehend. Yeah. Wow. All right. So you you did twenty three. What, what was going on in your life that said, "Hey, maybe it's time to move on to to do something else." Oh, I, I was ready to go. I was ready to go for years before I was able to go. But I had 23 total years of service, but I only had 20 and some change active years. And um, so I had to hit the active requirement of 20 plus in order to retire. And I was I was ready to go. Matter of fact, they called me and says, hey, you know, Chief Warren Officer Brown, you're going to be the only officer in the promotion zone. You're competing against yourself. You're going to get promoted to chief warrant officer four. And I said, okay. And he's like, oh, and we're going to move you to San Diego. You're going to be the region opso. So I would be the operations officer for all the recruiting West of the Mississippi hmm. for WRR Western recruiting region. I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm retiring. 
It's like, but the board's going in session. You know, you're, you're, you got to do this. I'm like, no, I don't. He said, then you better get me what they call an appendix J, which is the form to retire. You better get me an appendix J in 15 minutes. So I literally <laughs> sprinted down the hallway to the personnel officer, another chief warrant officer. I said, Fred, bro, I got 15 minutes to get an appendix J to headquarters Marine Corps. So we banged one out real quick and, and shot it up there. And, and I was set to retire after that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not getting to 20 once you get to like 12, I imagine it's just, it's not an option anymore. Right No. Yeah. Yeah. I, really, when you get to the halfway mark, when you get to 10, you're like, yeah, hey, I think I'm doing another 10. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to beat the military retirement. I mean, it just is, you know, you're, you get, I, I get paid to wake up in the morning. And that's an amazing thing that, I mean, I, at, let's say 40 something years old, because I inherited this farm, I had no, no debt. I got out of the Marine Corps debt-free, had no mortgage, owned some other houses and property. So I didn't have to work. And I'm watching my friends that are my age struggling. And I'm like, don't know what to tell you. Yeah. They could, they could have chosen a similar path as yours, right? Yeah, and I, it's one of those things. If you want to go dodge IEDs for 20 years to get the payoff, if it's worth it to you, if you're a gambling kind of person, then maybe it'll work out for you. Well, and you, and you want to serve your country too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I remember that question being asked to me at Paris Island. They bring you in in front of your series commander at some point in this lieutenant, and I'm standing there, you know, skinny 19-year-old kid, shaking like I can't believe I'm standing in front of this officer in the Marine Corps, this lieutenant. And he's like, why are you here at Paris Island yelling at me? I'm like, uh, sir. And I start giving some long winded BS answer. And he's like, how about to serve your country? Get the hell out of here. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, I was, you, know. you just said it in fewer words. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. All right. So did you take some time off uh, or did you try to jump into a job pretty quickly? I tried to jump into a job pretty quickly. I, actually, that's not true. We we came home and renovated the farmhouse that we inherited and uh, spent several months just kind of decompressing and, and working on that, working on the farm, planting some uh, a little potato patch. And uh, so that was good. And then I finally went to work. I did a uh, American Red Cross because I, did, I didn't want to work a full-time job. I, I'm inherently lazy, I guess. I'm like, if I can do a, a part-time job. So the American Red Cross had a paid staff position to run four counties up on the Cumberland Plateau, uh, Cumberland County, White County, Fentress County, and I can't remember the other one. So that was going to be my job. Okay, fantastic. I worked 20 hours a week, set my own hours, had my own uh, office down there on the courthouse square. It was just amazing. And then they offered me, uh, Rich, we're phasing out your job. However, we want promote you and you're going to be the disaster program manager for the entire state of Tennessee. Like, okay. Do you want it? <clears throat> okay. So I took it. <clears throat> so the next thing you know, I'm having breakfast at the government's governor's mansion and doing all this stuff. And at the high level, uh, t FEMA meetings and team meetings. And I worked a disaster or two and I'm like, man, this is killing me. This is uh, disaster relief operations are incredible. Incredibly hard. You want to talk about some amazing Americans, Paul, the people that will, I mean, because they're volunteers. I mean, I was a paid staff member, but that's less than 2% of the Red Cross are actually paid staff. Everybody else is a volunteer. So 
it puts your leadership skills to the test when you have to fly in volunteers from somewhere and, and ask them to serve chow for 16 hours in a disaster zone. And they're staying at some motel that may not have running water because it's affected too. Right. It, right. It's just, it's just a mess. It, so it's the closest thing I've ever seen to combat operations, but nobody's shooting at you. Right. I mean, there's no real necessarily opposing uh, force other than like the weather, extreme weather events and stuff like that. And there, but it is just as chaotic. You have limited resources. All those things are there to make it really stressful. Yeah. Uh, I, as an army national guardsman, I've, been down to southwest virginia and southern west virginia for flooding and it's uh the level of devastation that mother nature can unleash uh in parts of this country is unbelievable yeah yeah it is and, and it one of those things I, I always felt like the red cross was kind of the whipping boy because uh you know it seems like it always rolls down to what's the red cross going to do about this I'm like we don't we don't get paid with only people in here well staff getting paid but the volunteers that are out there killing themselves and running the shelters they're here out of the goodness of their own heart yeah it's a it's a giant nonprofit that does amazing work uh and they're doing it without financial reward in in 98 of the cases yeah that's absolutely right yeah uh how long did you do that a year and a half okay and so at what point did podcasting become a thing that's it that's a great question so when I was in the Red Cross, my my business partner, Mike Seeklander, who had what, what's interesting about 9-11 for him, after 9-11, he gets hired to take over the Federal Air Marshal Program, the firearms portion. So he's he's a semi-professional shooter back then. We were cops together, Marines together, bouncers together, blah, blah, blah. So he gets the uh, <clears throat> this world-famous professional shooter, a guy named Jerry Barnhart, tells my friend, Mike, says, you should call the air marshals. They're trying to put a, a, a team of firearms instructors together. So Mike calls up there and says, Hey, Jerry Barnhart said to call, call you guys. Jerry Barnhart said to call. So he gets hired to run the air marshals firearms program. <clears throat> and at the time they're cranking out people because they think that's where we're going to fight the next war is in the sky. Right. This is just, this is something that's going to happen. Well, of course it didn't materialize, but they didn't know that at the time. So he went from that. He, he, uh, ran a firearms program at federal law enforcement training center down in um, uh, North Charleston in uh, South Carolina. And then he goes off to run the United States shooting Academy. So all this time I'm, I'm kind of helping him with stuff. He calls me while I'm working for the red cross. Like, Hey, I want to start this thing called the American warriors society. And it's going to be a paid membership. And we're going to, and so in that process of how do we market ourselves? We're like, hey, we could do a podcast. And this is in 2015. There were podcasts out there, but there wasn't like it is today. Right, Paul? Right. So we're like, okay, well, we, we'll do a podcast and we'll uh, market the business. And that's all it was going to be. And then the next thing you know, after about a year, probably, it was like sponsors started calling and, hey, we, we want you to send you some gear. And if you like the gear, we'd like to talk to you about a financial arrangement. But even still, it, it's taken years for me to look in the mirror and go, I'm a professional podcaster. How the heck did this happen? <laughs> but we also traveled the country training uh, some military units, some law enforcement teams and stuff like that with his company shooting performance. 
so it's been a it's been an amazing journey. I've met a lot of amazing people uh, through our community that we've created, and um, there I am. And your podcast is about self defense. Yeah, we've talked to. I think we're in the two seventies on the podcast we've done for the past five or six years. And we've interviewed everybody in the tactical to overuse that overused word space, you know, uh, former SEAL team, six guys, former Delta force guys, former high level cops, uh, UFC fighters. I think we've talked to, I'm not going to say everybody, but all the big names in the community. We've talked to the big name competitive shooters, uh, we've talked to everybody. So yeah, it's, I don't know if it still is, but there for the longest time, it was the leading self-defense podcast on iTunes. So that's, uh, that's incredible. Yeah. It's I'm talking to you from my little studio right now. No, I was going to say, you've got some uh, cool stuff going on behind you. Is that, uh, the company's insignia there? Yeah. Logo. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Man, so when you were in your last year as a Marine, I, there's no way you could have imagined you'd be podcasting. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Man, I, one of the funny, interesting things I did while I was still on active duty, I was a creative writing instructor. Hmm. So we had this program. It was another nonprofit called Millspeak. And what we would do, Paul, is we would help veterans deal with PTSD or maybe even a spouse of a veteran and help them process their military experience through creative nonfiction. And I remember one day we had a, a famous author that was given a talk to some of our students and we're like, Hey, we're going to make this a podcast and we're going to send it to Iraq to some other vet, uh, some other service members over there. So they can see what we're doing. And I remember going, what the hell is a podcast? <laughs> what? what is a podcast? What are you doing? What's this microphone? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's, I never saw it coming. Not in a million years, no. but you're having a blast, right? Having a blast pays yeah, the fun. bills. It's funny. I, I can get seals to talk to me. I can get green berets to talk to me. Uh, those Delta boys don't, don't want to talk about themselves though. No, they don't. And I, I had, um, uh, Pete labor on recently cause I loved his book and it, I don't normally reach out to my guests. Uh, more often than not, they, they kind of come to us. But this is an instance where I, I went hat in hand as like, hey, sir, I, I've read your book twice. I love it. I won't say the D word on the podcast because <laughs> they get real sensitive about that. Uh, we'll, we'll just call it special mission unit. And I finally got him on it, one of the first and only podcasts he's ever done. Um, but, yeah, they, they are an interesting breed of folks for sure. Yeah, they, they are uh... – this wonderful combination of talented, brave, and humble. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I don't, as a adult middle-aged man, I don't have really any hero worship. I could, I could give a fiddler's fart less about any actor or actress. And I wouldn't go across the road to watch any sports team play anything. I just do not care. But, but when it comes to, you know, CAG is what they're known as recently that I've heard, you know, the CAG guys, man, they're they're a breed apart. Are having met and known a, a lot of them over the years, they are truly special people, man. Yeah. Well, and uh, I'm glad they're on our side. Yeah, that's a fact. For sure. All right, so you you've uh, practiced a ton of martial arts. T tell me about why why martial arts and and what's kept you uh, doing it for so long? Because you hold black belt or two or three in various disciplines, right? 
That's no, not at all. Um, and that's something you and I were talking about before the show, because we moved around a lot as a kid. I never, to this day, I don't have a black belt. Hmm. So, so, but, but, but I have belts in Okinawan freestyle karate, uh, Aki jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, Marine Corps martial arts program. Uh, I was a close combat instructor. I was an instructor trainer, defensive tactics instructor trainer for diversified services group, uh, Monadnock, RAD. So as far as like police defensive tactics, holding certifications to teach those, yes. Um, and then Ishinru, Judo. I mean, I have belts and a lot of different stuff, it, which feeds into what we were talking about before the show. And that is all my childhood from, from the time I was 10 years old, I've been doing some sort of martial art. And I would get bored with it after a year or two and bounce out. And then maybe five years later, come back to it. Kind of like the way I read. I read books like that too, Paul. I got a giant pile of books on my nightstand. My wife gets mad at me all the time because they fall over in the middle of the night. But I'll read a hundred pages on one and put it down like, ah, that chapter's boring me. I'll pick up another one. So I kind of did that with the martial arts, but I, I got into it because, um, I grew up at that time we were living in Memphis and, uh, I got bullied a lot for being one of the few white kids in the class. And, uh, it was a really racially charged time that was, there was doing a lot of busing. So, it was just not a very pleasant experience. And so somebody decided, said we should do karate. So we started going to the YMCA and, and doing some karate. Now I didn't learn any fancy skill, nor is there really any fancy skill out there. But what I did learn was self-reliance, self-direction, self-discipline, right. Um, and staying fit. And, and then that self-reliance led to resiliency, uh, mental resiliency. And it also, the other thing it did was uh, being a part of a community of like-minded people that, that love to train, that love that self-discipline and, and studying it. I never looked at it as an art because as a bouncer and as a cop and as a corrections officer, you know, as a corrections officer, you're, you're, you're putting hands on inmates almost every day. And a lot of those go to the ground and, and the fight's on, or as a bouncer, you know, uh, working at a nightclub right out uh, or topless bars. I've worked them all. You know, it, it, it's a lot of use of force and I've, I've never been a big guy. I'm five, nine, a hundred and nothing at the time. So uh, I used a lot of the things. Well, actually what's true about this is I learned a lot of things that I learned in the dojo that did not work when you try to apply them to a drunk, uncompliant patron that don't want to leave the bar because he's been plying this girl with whiskey all night. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, it was a, uh, it was a good time. I, I, I still enjoy it. I still train uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is my new jam. I've been doing it for about a little over four years under an amazing guy, Cody Hudson, shout out to you. And uh, my other professor is uh, Lance. Uh, so yeah, it's good stuff. All right. Uh, obviously, part of self-defense is being able to handle weapons, and and I, you compete. Uh, what is it about shooting and and competing uh, with firearms that you enjoy it? Clearly, yeah. I, I hate to say this, I don't enjoy it. It's really? Like, no, I call it eating my vegetables. I, <laughs> yeah, I did not was, see this coming, Rich. Yeah, I know, man, and most people don't. Because they, there's an assumption 
that, oh, you do it all the time. You must enjoy it. I really don't. And I, I it's one of those things that my business partner, Mike Seeklander, he's the world champion. He does. He wakes up. He goes to the range every day. He loves it. He, he loves it. I really don't. I'm not, I don't consider myself a gun guy. And here's why, even though, yeah, I get it. I run the American warrior society. I teach firearms all over the country, but it's not my jam. It's what I do professionally. And I compete in order to, to stay relevant and good, um, reasonably good, but I've never enjoyed it. And I think that I look at myself as a warrior, someone who's will defend my family and my friends and myself. And if to, to do that, to impose my will on another human being, I have to use my car. I'm going to use my car. If I have to use this mechanical pen that's in my hand, I'm using it. Uh, you know, nothing will stop me from imposing my will. And I say that because like we alluded to earlier in, in desert storm, I dropped DPICM on people. I'm not a DPICM guy. You know, I've, uh, with all the things I've done and all the, different platforms I've been certified on. I don't, I don't consider that my weapon system. And I know this sounds so stupid and cliche and I'm going to say it is really the six inches in between my ears. That's it. Because my wife and I like to go to Europe. Well, in Europe, I'm unarmed. Can't carry a gun. Certainly can't carry a knife, but what they cannot take away from me is Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. They can't take away from me, my, my physical fitness level. They can't take away from me gravity and physics and how your arm bends and how I can use it against you. So, and to, to th a lot, I think a lot of people, maybe people mine in your age that carry a firearm and it's this magic talisman that they carry with them to make them feel better about themselves or something like that. That's just not the way I view it. It's just a tool to help me impose my will. And I kind of was funny if, if I may indulge just a minute longer, I, I came to this conclusion one time by watching a riot of inmates in a pod. So I'm a, I'm a pod officer. I got 48 inmates in this high close custody thing. It's just me and them locked behind two locked doors and I'm supposed to keep them from killing themselves. That's my job. Well, one day this fight breaks out and I watch this inmate who's mopping the floor. He's just as calm as he can be. He's been a nice inmate. No problems. He had San Quentin tattooed on his stomach. He's been around, but he's kind of an old salt. <clears throat> As soon as the fight breaks out, he's mopping the floor. But as soon as the first punches get thrown and he, he looks up and he immediately snaps the broom and goes to work. Mm. I mean, immediately without hesitation, he didn't look around bang the the broom got snapped and he's, he started jacking people with it. And I just remember going, that's kind of what I've always thought. You know, you one mind, any weapon, as we used to say, when I was a Marine Corps close combat instructor, I, it, it doesn't matter what tool I have to use to impose my will, I'm willing to, to pick it up and use it. Yep. And, uh, obviously you want to protect your, your family and, uh, you, you do anything to protect them. And so, yeah, you, you'll learn some things that maybe you don't enjoy doing, but, uh, but you learn those skills and it's part of your business too. And you get, you got to do what you got to do there as well. So I, I appreciate that brutally uh, candid answer that, that was, uh, I did not see that coming, Rich. I wrote, years ago, I wrote an article on that for our website, and and I people were just emailing me like, I can't believe this. You say you're not a gun guy. And I'm like, man, I, I used to teach people how to shoot the AT4. I used to teach demolitions in the Marine Corps professionally. I'm not a non-electrical firing system guy. Or, you know, I'm, I just think that 
you know, I go to Marshall Blade Camp in Colorado and do edge weapons for like four days straight and come back black and blue. I'm not an edge weapons guy. I'm just Rich Brown who lives on a farm in East Tennessee that, you know, wants to make sure that he's trained and pre prepared enough to, to get himself out of most situations. Right on. All right. So tell me about your family. You've obviously, uh, you talked a little bit about your wife, but uh, tell me more about your wife. And uh, I think you referenced kids earlier as well. Yeah, I have four kids. Um, I have two boys, two girls. Caroline is our oldest. And like I said, she's a professional artist. She's married, 29. Then we have Grant, who just, uh, he's finishing up his master's in computer science. And he currently is a research scientist for a national laboratory. I can't say which one. But uh, he's working on reverse engineering acquired pieces of technology that came from somewhere and reverse engineering them. So he's he's out there doing that for cybersecurity for our government. Then I have my uh, my other daughter, Maggie, is uh, we adopted her when my sister passed away. So mm. she, she's an amazing young woman. And then my youngest son, Aiden, who just graduated high school. And we uh, were one big, happy family. Anybody join the military? Negative. No. No matter of fact, I tell you, like you know, we were talking about uh, being a Scots Irish guy from East Tennessee and a family full of quasi bootleggers and such like that. And when I told my my memo I'm joining the Marine Corps, she's like, I'd rather you be going to prison. <laughs> she meant it. Because because the Marine Corps, they're, they're abiding by the law, and in, in some cases. Well, they, they work for the man. They work for the government. And to her, it was more honor to, to go do your time in prison than to, to join the government. True story. Uh, well, so hey, no, she's no, not that, all wrong. Yeah, so that was never, I mean, my father cried. He's like, why are you doing this? Well, please, son, tell me you're at least going to learn a skill. Because my dad had spent like two years in the Navy before I think they kicked him out. But and he had worked on air, airplanes or something. And I said, no, dad, I'm going to be in the infantry. And he just started wailing. Oh, no. What have mm. you done? Wow. All right, Rich, I've, I've got a weird question we end most of our uh, podcast episodes with. You have a talk show or you have a podcast. And then on your podcast episode, you get to invite three. I'll call them people, but the third one's not necessarily a person. You get to invite a male, a female. And then a musical group um, or a musical uh, soloist, uh, and it's it can be for your entertainment, it can be for the world's entertainment, it can be thought provoking, uh, it could be educational. Uh, your guests can be alive or dead. They can be related to you. They could be strangers to you. They could be famous, not famous. Who are, who are your three guests? Okay, just so I understand the parameters. <clears throat> It's uh, a male and a female and then a musical group, right? Musical group or musical soloist. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think f for the man that I would pick, my grandfather, Ralph Brown, to have one more day with him would be a magic. And then my the woman would be my his wife, uh, Margaret Brown, to have one more day with them. I, I just can't express enough how what an amazing uh, couple they were. They really uh, taught me everything about like – being a man or raising a family. They, they were just fantastic people. So one more day with them would be worth everything to me. As far as a musical group, man, again, my musical taste is a little weird. Hmm. This is going to be weird, but the one that comes to mind, 
is probably Morrissey from the Smiths. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that not, weird? That's not weird. He's super talented. Yeah. But I mean, I just on the fly thinking about it, I'm like, man, he, he's a pretty interesting dude. It's a pretty amazing life. So yeah, I would, I would probably talk to him. I can't think of anybody that's kind of sticks out to me right now. No, it's all good. Rich. Uh, I, <laughs> some unexpected uh, answers, uh, some great stories. Uh, this has been a ton of fun, man. I am uh, very proud to have connected with you. Uh, also uh, extremely proud of, of your service and everything you've done for our country. Uh, I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on the, the Paul and silent Rob. Thanks for, thanks for <laughs> being over there, brother. But, yeah. Cool, man. Hey, so rich, I have, if I end broadcast, I think I'm going to be disconnecting us. Um, I would love to stay in touch just because I, I uh, think you're an interesting dude and uh, we might be able to connect each other with some interesting folks. Uh, yes. I've, I've got uh, plenty of uh, military buddies that uh, wouldn't mind learning more about what you guys are doing at, uh, at your company. I think well, it's awesome, you. man. Well, you're you, living, your, you're living your best life. I really am. I, I, I'm married to my best friend. I, my business partner is my other best friend, Mike Seeklander. Uh, we have an amazing company. We have amazing people that are part of our community. And I, I just wake up every day and pinch myself. I cannot believe I'm getting to do this at this point in my life. It's amazing. Well, uh, we just met, but I'm, I'm always happy when a, a fellow 52-year-old uh, is living his best life. It's awesome. Yeah, you too, Paul. Thanks for having me on the show, brother. It's been a f really fun time. Yeah, awesome, man. Thanks, Rich. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com. Thank you.